I have a uh, another return guest, Professor Keith Barr. How are you doing, Keith? I'm doing very well, thank you. So um, I really appreciate you coming back on. As I um, had just mentioned to you just before we uh, uh, started recording, that um, it's been a while since we last had a conversation with the podcast. Um, I'm just looking at my notes. That was episode 38, which was in February 2015. And that's when we were talking about hormonal responses to, um, sorry, nutrition and molecular responses to strength training, um, which actually is one of the most popular podcasts I've ever recorded. And um, I get huge numbers of uh, comments from lecturers and teachers and students saying that they, they use that podcast as a revision tool. Um, so I don't know how I blagged my way through that podcast with you, Keith, but I survived. Um, but but that of course is not the only time we've crossed paths. Um, we were amongst, uh, a number of incredible, uh, experts and guests out in, um, Aspatar in, uh, Qatar, um, which I want to say was a year ago, but I got a horrible feeling now it might be more than that. A year ago, November. Year ago, November. Wow. Yes. And um, at that event uh, where we were at the, the first sports nutrition conference in that entire region organized by Dan Kings, who's coming on, by the way, um, in an upcoming podcast, might even be the next podcast, actually. Um, so hi, Dan. How you doing? Um, I heard you talk about your, your work on the, um, on the area of collagen synthesis and how uh, nutrition um, might be able to play a role in, in supporting interventions for sort of prehab and rehab in, in that realm. So we'll, we'll, we'll get back into, um, into that topic and then introduce the podcast properly. But of course, um, more recently, I was at the World Cup. Uh, I had the pleasure of um, you know, working uh, with a national team, Egypt in this case, um, and uh, there was a particular situation which was uh, one of those nightmare situations for a team, particularly with a team like Egypt where uh, many fine players on the team, but they had a number of world-class players, one of whom in particular was arguably, and still is, if not more so now, one of the world's best football players that there is, who got injured just before um our world cup campaign in fact the you know the 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 the, about six weeks prior to or a month prior to um our first game in russia um this player uh, got pretty badly injured and there was that panic where he might not um even get to play a game which had all sorts of ramifications not just from a, uh, a football perspective, but from a psychological perspective to the team, um, which um, I will do probably a podcast all about that another time. Um, but the reason why I'm mentioning this is because um, when this came to light, um, you made contact uh, with me um, very kindly to help me um, make sure that the nutritional support that I was giving this player um, was as sound as possible because the specific problems that he had actually fell into the realms of expertise that you have. So the reason why I'm mentioning this is because it's a very real world thing that we're about to talk about. And I always mention to my students, to my listeners, 
um, about you know th th this thing that is essentially the the toolbox that practitioners have. Um, it is tempting for people to use tools that probably shouldn't be in the toolbox, or a lot of people don't understand how to use those tools properly, um, um, and specifically don't know when and and so on. Which is one of the great benefits of doing these sorts of podcasts when we can talk to the people like yourself who've actually done the science um, and we can unpack that evidence into an applied context but of course I actually had that real world scenario and you helped me fine-tune the, um, the interventions and this player did play we got him back on to pitch a little faster than was assumed we don't know for sure but I'm, I'm sure that that your help and advice in my interventions did, did help so thank you for that um, right, let's get into this podcast, Keith. So before we talk about collagen peptides and collagen synthesis and why this is all relevant in, in the context of performance, nutrition, and exercise science and so on, um, just in case, in the very unlikely event that our listeners aren't entirely sure who you are and what, you, um, what you're doing with your work, if you could just give us some background, please. Yeah, sure. So, so I um, started as a strength and conditioning coach with one of the American football teams, uh, one of the big college American football teams, University of Michigan. And I trained there and, and, you know, I became really fascinated by the fact that you could put the same group of individuals onto a training program and one would grow huge and strong and the other would stay almost the same size. Yeah. So I did a PhD that was basically trying to figure out what are the molecular signals that tell the muscle that it should grow. And in, during that time, we discovered that mTOR activity was related to the growth of the, of the muscle. So when you did resistance exercise, if you activated mTOR really high, you got a bigger muscle. If you didn't activate it very much, you didn't get as big a muscle. And so that was, a, that was my first um, foray into, into a little bit of molecular biology of exercise. And I went and worked with John Holizy, who was the kind of sensei of endurance exercise. He was the world's probably leader in that field. And there I, I was lucky enough to be able to discover that um, PGC1-alpha, which is this kind of master co-activator, was activated by endurance exercise. And so, so that was really nice. And then I started my own laboratory um, after having done a little bit of work at the University of Michigan where I did a lot of kind of engineering of muscle and tendons and ligaments. And then my own laboratory started in, at the University of Dundee in Scotland where we had started making kind of new discoveries as to how, um, how muscle grows, but also how the interaction between the muscle and the tendon work and how you could actually study these things in a small, in a small model that we had in a dish. And so we, we now engineer ligaments routinely and we can test all kinds of different nutritional and exercise interventions to really understand how these tissues, these tendons and ligaments, that everybody has kind of for years thought we're inert. Now the question is, well, everybody now realizes that they're quite active. And so the, the, the thing that we need to do is understand how we need to load them and how nutrition affects their, their strength and, and functionality. And so that's really what we've been working on here. No, that's, that's great. And because my, um, my, my interest primarily, particularly my purpose with these podcasts is trying to, get science into into practice um it's always great when i talk to researchers such as yourself that has had the opportunity um you know to be practitioners um because 
there is, you know, there's plenty of fine science being produced out of there, but there is a tendency for um, some people to produce science, which is not necessarily directly relevant to practice, but that can be a problem for practitioners in terms of the translation of, of that information. The, you know, how do you even determine whether it's relevant? Relevant's my new favorite word. You know, is it, it's great. It's, it's good science. It, you know, it's, it's all high class stuff, but is it actually relevant? And that's a very difficult thing for practitioners to determine. And this is one of these topics where, you know, we're working with athletes. We're not just working with regular people who in their own right. Um, in fact, uh, I saw uh, Graham Close had, uh, uh, had a, an article published in a regular uh, uh, mag- uh, newspaper, I think it was, uh, on mm-hmm. a similar topic to this, which, which, which was really well written in terms of getting the science to just the average person and getting them to understand how relevant this is. But, um, you know, n- notwithstanding the, the benefits to average, quotes unquote, average people, but for athletes, you know, who, whose bodies do get a serious hammering, don't they? Yeah. Um, and there's many different types of sports, but invariably it's going to involve people running around on legs, um, of which there are huge amounts of stresses. So maybe you could help us understand, of, of the many things that you could have studied, how, how did you end up getting into this particular area? Yeah, so, so it actually first started when I was in the UK in Scotland, and I went to work with um, British Cycling. And up until that point, we always thought that, look, a muscle's strong because it's big so it has to be big to be strong and mark simpson there at british cycling is like i've got all this data that shows that our our body weights are staying the same muscle sizes are staying the same but we're getting significantly stronger and so that made me really reevaluate how we thought of a muscle and how it works because if if the muscle is staying the same size but it's getting stronger that really means that there's something else that's changing within the structure And one of the things that we thought could change within the structure was the ability to transmit the force that the muscle was making to the bike or to the, to the ground or to wherever you need to do to produce your, your motion with more power and with more speed. And so we started looking to try and figure out what else is in the muscle that could do this. And a lot of the information that we came to was there's all this extracellular matrix in there. And if it's kind of gooey, and it's not very stiff, and it doesn't really do much, then what's going to happen is you're going to contract the muscle, and the muscle is not going to pull on anything. It's, it's like, so we're here in Northern California. We're very close to Lake Tahoe, which is some of the best skiing around, and they got something like 12 feet of snow a couple of weeks ago. Wow. And if you're in big powder like that, and you fall down, and you think, okay, I'm just going to get up, and you push your hand into the snow, your hand just goes right into the snow. It doesn't give you any resistance. And so if you're trying to pull on that, it doesn't give you resistance. So if a muscle, when we're first starting to work on it, is kind of that it doesn't give you enough resistance, you're not going to see as much force at the tendons, moving the bones, going into the bike or going into the field or going onto the floor to produce your power. And so we started really looking at how the connective tissue was actually playing a role in performance. And what we were seeing really, really obviously is that the extracellular matrix within a muscle is really, really dynamic. In fact, we do, we do an exercise stimulus in our, in our laboratory, and we've always done this exercise stimulus. That's how we discovered the, the mTOR relationship. What we discovered is that the, the gene that goes up the most out of any one that we've ever studied is actually one that binds to the collagen promoter and increases collagen synthesis. 
So this, this transcription factor goes up 120 fold by an hour and a half after exercise. It's a massive effect that you don't see from any other stimulus. And it makes sense that it, if you are going to produce force within the muscle, you need to reinforce the structures so that the muscle fibers are protected and they can transmit the force. And so when we do a number of different studies, when we do overload and the muscle gets bigger, we actually see collagen concentration increase, which means that as the muscle is growing, collagen is actually being synthesized faster than the muscle proteins themselves. And so one of the things that we've realized in our, in our recent work is that the reason that Mark and, and British Cycling at the time were getting these big increases in strength, one reason was probably because they had more connective tissue that functioned better and could transmit the force that the muscle was producing to produce that motion, to get more force into the pedal so they go faster at a same-sized muscle. And so that was really, really enlightening for, for me to, to be in the practitioner's area and realized that they were doing something that the physiologist said wasn't really possible. Because we had always been taught, all of the textbooks say force is proportional to the cross-sectional area of the muscle. And it's really the muscle fibers. But most practitioners have seen times where the muscle is actually maybe even getting smaller, but force is going up. And so that really you know, cemented in our mind that there's something else that's going on. And so that's why we started to shift towards this idea that collagen is important. And then as you start to get into it, you realize, well, 70% of all injuries that an athlete is going to suffer are musculoskeletal injuries. Jeez. They're going to be sprains, tears, and pulls. All of that is collagen-based as well. And so the question is, how do we, why are we getting so many of these? Why is it that women get four times more ACL ruptures than men, but they get 60 to 80% fewer groin strains and hamstring strains. And if you go in and you try and understand how a connective tissue works, you can actually explain some of these differences. And so that's really where we've started to go because it plays such an essential role in performance now, whether you're an 80 year old person trying to perform just activities of daily living, but most importantly for us, whether you're a young person who's trying to be an elite athlete and try and optimize performance. Do you, Keith, do you think that one problem we've had, and, I, and I'm coming from the not translating the science to practice particularly well over, you know, the last few decades might have something to do with the fact that historically what we've done is, is, is we've, you know, we, we've created these fantastic, but very well controlled mechanistic studies in the lab that don't necessarily, you know, reproduce real world context. And by that, I mean, you know, the, 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 the way the body moves, the stresses and strains um, that are presented, you know, whilst running around on, on uneven surfaces, while someone's thinking about something that, you know, even cognitive function from low blood sugar or whatever could influence how they're moving from time to time, which is not, which is nowhere near the same way in which they may have historically trained it in some sort of isokinetic or, uh, you know, like a Nautilus machine or something. Uh, uh, and so now we're tending to look at things as 
maybe it's it, it's more of an integrated picture, a bigger picture perspective. It, it, it is that. Do you think that the, that because of the evolution of knowledge and the evolution of technologies and so on, that that is maybe why we're getting a bigger picture, or as we usually discover in this situation, we're obviously only just at the tip of the iceberg with learning. But but do you feel that, that is you know looking at it from a, a more integrative perspective is 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 maybe where we're learning more useful information? Yeah. So there's two there's two really big issues that I think have caused problems here. And one of them is definitely in the science component where we're, we, as a scientist, we have to control everything but one thing. And so when we control everything but one thing, we just change that one thing, it's not necessarily going to be true to life as what a practitioner is going to see. So that's the first component. That Yes, there is some issues that, that it's not as specific uh, stimulus and it we're not loading, you know, these, you know, college age subjects the same way that you would load an elite athlete. There's no doubt about that. The, the second problem though, is that the way that elite sport is right now, if you don't get positive results, you're gone very quickly. And what we can, what we've learned from studying connective tissue is that if I want to maximize your performance, I'm going to train you in such a way that I'm going to make you more prone to injury. Mm. So if you're only looking at the short term, I have to maximize your performance over that short term. If I'm looking at the long term, my goal is to keep you healthy. Those two things for training are going to have very different training styles. And so classically what you'd see in a performance driven system is that you would go in with the strength and conditioning coaches. They would load you in a specific way. They'd increase your performance. You'd get injured. You'd go back into the physios and the athletic trainers they would load you in a different way. They would progress you in a different way. They would get you healthy, get you back to the strength coach, and then you would go through this continuous cycle. And really, that's where a lot of the problems have occurred because we train in such a way as to only really maximize performance in the near future. We're not training to maximize performance over a longer period of time. And so when we understand how the loading is affecting our musculoskeletal system, there are certain times where, yes, we want to perform at our best, so we're going to train in a certain way. But then what we have to do is we have to do enough protective movements that are going to prevent us from having a lot of the types of injuries that we see when we increase training load. So we're going to get hamstrings. You know, you're, we're going to get groins. We're going to get all of these muscle pulls in men because as their training load goes up, their, their plyometric load goes up, now what's going to happen is they're going to be more prone to these types of injuries. Just simply integrating a few protective movements can actually decrease the injury rate without affecting performance. And so when you really understand how the tissue works, then that allows you to actually make progressions and keep people healthy while they perform at a high level. And really the problem that we have in this field is that it's very difficult to measure tendon and uh, tendon function in people. And that's really, really difficult to do because in an animal, I can just take out the tendon. I can grab the bone and the muscle and I can pull it apart and I can look at different areas and see what happens in the different areas. That's not possible in humans because nobody's going to give me the tendon that you don't want to, there's no way. Especially so, not a football player worth a hundred million or something. <laughs> 
Exactly. You're just not going to have those opportunities. So you'd kind of try and infer it from different things, but it, it makes it really difficult then for the practitioner to understand how their loading is affecting this tissue, which is going to place the muscle at a greater likelihood of injury. Yeah. And that's why I find myself becoming more increasingly excited about some of these evidence-based, you know, strategies that are coming to light where we can play a role in, well, look, it is what it is that, you know, the, the, the athletes, like you say, it, it, it isn't always going to be an ideal situation because things have to get done now, yesterday, or even within that four year Olympic cycle, for example, or a world cup cycle, you know, timing is never on your side, but the great thing that, that we can do nowadays is, is not just support, recovery but we can also help prevent mitigate um and that's where this particular area that we're getting into i think has some some good potential which is you know great for performance nutritionists um and everyone else who's who's interested in this topic so let's just delve a bit deeper in into this um so you know, let's just define what we're talking about then, Keith. So, you know, we're talking about, uh, well, I'll let, you, I'll let you do the defining, but what we're talking about here is not just a nutritional thing because it is a, there's multiple aspects to this, isn't there? But nutrition is certainly part of it in terms of the strategies that are involved. Perhaps you could just introduce this, this concept of, um, you know, dealing with collagen peptides, collagen synthesis, and so on. Yeah, sure. So, so the big, the, I think the place to start is this idea of collagen because collagen is one of these um, nutritional supplements that has been becoming super, super popular. Last year it was the top thing at all of the nutrition supplement meetings. And it's really, really problematic because we only have a handful of studies. And the studies that we have, look, I've done, I've done the majority of them. They're very small. Yeah. And small size studies are much more prone to find a positive effect. All of those things are absolutely true. Um, so, so, you know, that's where I always start because this is a really, really, the science is really, really in its very early stages. The promotions, the, all of the things that the companies are doing to try and promote their product, that's in a very advanced stage. And I always joke with Stu Phillips that, look, when he was doing all this basic research on whey protein and, and looking at amino acids, the companies were way behind. So he could get 10 or 15 studies done before the companies got really excited and came in and said, hey, we've got whey proteins that's going to make you big and strong. It's the reverse for us. We're, we're doing the science and we're trying to get studies out as quickly as we can, but everybody is saying that this is going to cure all of these ailments. And so, so the first thing is to just start with collagen at it, as itself. It's presented as, you can get it as gelatin, you can get it as collagen, you can get it as collagen peptides. So the first thing to, to understand is look, gelatin or collagen, um, it comes from, most of it comes from skin, bones, um, basically all of the connective tissues from animals. It has to be an animal product because there is no such thing as a vegetarian gelatin. You can make gels using vegetarian or vegan products, but they're made with agar, which is a sugar. So it's not actually the same thing. It doesn't have any amino acids in it at all. 
So it's what we use as a negative control if we're going to do a gel study because it has no none of the amino acids in collagen. So you can't get a vegetarian or vegan product. Everything that exists is coming from the skin or bones of, of beef, of pork, fish, or chicken. And so if anybody's ever made a bone broth and they've put it in the fridge, that top little bit that becomes the jelly the next day, that's your, that's your gelatin component of it. That's the collagen that's been extracted by boiling of the skin, the bones, and, and the, all of the connective tissues. And so then to go from gelatin, which is the thing that forms the gel, to hydrolyzed collagen, you just have to undergo a simple set of reactions. So it's a simple chemical reaction that now cuts the gelatin, which is just denatured collagen. It cuts it in certain places, and now you've got hydrolyzed collagen. So that basically by using acid or something else to cut it, now you've made it so that it can no longer form a gel. All right, so that's the difference between gelatin and hydrolyzed collagen. So that if you're going to use something and somebody's going to drink it and they're a little bit squeamish, the hydrolyzed collagen is better because it dissolves completely, whereas the gelatin is going to be crystalline. And then the idea of collagen peptides is now in, when you take the gelatin and you cut it with a very specific amino acid, or sorry, a very specific enzyme, what it's going to do is it's going to cut it into smaller bits and the enzyme cuts regularly at a certain recognition site. And so that you get a repeating peptide, a small piece of the collagen molecule. And so people promote these as being better. They promote it as being, okay, this is good for, this is good for your cartilage versus good for your tendons or skin because they, they say they start with a different collagen source and then they cut it with a specific enzyme which gives you a different collagen peptide. In every study that we've done, we've looked at it six or seven different types of collagens and gelatins. They all seem to behave the same. There doesn't seem to be a magic peptide. There doesn't seem to be a magic component. The gelatin for many people actually works better than the hydrolyzed collagen or some of the collagen peptides. And it, a lot of it has to do with how well you digest and absorb these molecules. Um, and so for a lot of people who are regular meat eaters, they seem to absorb gelatin really well. They seem to absorb hydrolyzed collagen pretty well. And so we can get those in. And then the important thing to realize is that the collagen doesn't get absorbed as a whole molecule that then goes into your tendon and just incorporates. It gets broken down to amino acids and small peptides that your body can absorb. And then those amino acids and peptides appear in the blood and we can measure them. And so we can measure how well you digest proly or sorry, how well you digest gelatin versus hydrolyzed collagen versus something like a gummy or any kind of combination. And we can really get an idea as to, all right, for you, the best possibility is to say, you want to use gelatin because you absorb it better than you absorb hydrolyzed collagen, or maybe the reverse is true. But there are really small differences. Yeah, and I think one area of confusion, particularly for the less well-educated in this, is going to be that important differentiation between collagen ingestion and collagen synthesis, right. which you were sort of getting into, into there. So perhaps you could just help explain what that difference is because that's obviously going to be relevant mm -hmm. to what we're talking about. Yep, so exactly the same 
as our protein, our whey protein would be for our muscle. What we do with whey protein is we break it down into all of the amino acids. The reason that whey is really good is because it's high in leucine, and within the muscle, leucine activates all of these signals which cause the muscle to increase protein synthesis. So when we eat or drink a gelatin or hydrolyzed collagen solution, what happens is we break it down into these small amino acids and peptides. The interesting thing about collagen is it's mostly made up of only three or four amino acids. It's really high in glycine, really high in proline, lysine, and arginine. So those are really the four amino acids that are very enriched in that product because collagen is a molecule that's made up of glycine, any amino acid, and then proline. And it's just a repeated tri tripeptide sequence that you make into this collagen molecule. The only other things that you really find that are unique to collagen are the hydroxylated amino acids, hydroxylysine and hydroxyproline. These can't be used to synthesize new, pro, new um, collagen, but they might signal to the cells that we need to produce something more. So that's why people look at those two amino acids. So what happens is you've digested and absorbed your, your, your collagen or your, your hydrolyzed collagen or your gelatin. Now you've got these amino acids now your cells can use those amino acids to synthesize collagen. And collagen is this, it's the most common protein in your body. Our collagen synthesis rate goes down as we age. All of these things are true. And as we are presented with the glycine, the proline, and all of these amino acids, if there is any kind of rate-limiting component there, your cells can get a signal that are, and we don't understand the signals yet. That's one of the things that we're, we're really trying hard to understand. What, it, what can happen is those amino acids can stimulate the synthesis of collagen within, within your cells. And collagen is made in this long molecule that has little extra bits at the beginning because it always forms a gel. And if you're making it inside a cell and it forms a gel inside the cell, it's gonna cause the cell to explode. So you make it as a pre-peptide. So it's a pre-pro protein. And so what happens is once it's secreted from the cell, you cut off the two, the N and the C terminus. And this is what we measure when we're measuring collagen synthesis. We measure the, the P1NP, which is the pro-collagen 1 N-terminal or amino-terminal peptide. And so when you make collagen, you secrete it from the cell, and then you cut off the ends and it can now be assembled into a collagen fibril. Okay, so what we're doing when we measure collagen synthesis is we're measuring the production of P1NP as a, as a, um, a marker for how much collagen you've been making in your body. So when I was reading the various papers um, from your research on this and some other associated papers, uh, you, you also do make a, a, a point in saying that irrelevant of consuming some form of collagen, collagen synthesis will still occur under certain circumstances, um, um, which, which of course you're seeing in your actual studies. But, but you know, so firstly, just, just help us understand what, you know, why is collagen synthesis, you know, why is it a natural 
process within the body and what is that actually in response to and for what purpose? Um, I think that's important for us. To yeah, so, so the collagen is going to play a huge, so what we're doing in synthesizing collagen, that collagen is going to go into our hair, it's going to go into our skin, it's going to go into all of our different tissues. And what it does is it's the protein that really holds together everything in your body. So it makes the extracellular matrix that is the backbone of, of all of your tissues holds your tissues, gives it its shape. And then importantly for us, it's going to be collagen one is 70% of all of the protein within a tendon. It's 65 to eight to 65 to 80% of all of the protein within a ligament. So the reason that we're interested in collagen synthesis and importantly as well is it's going to form the major protein backbone of the bones. So your bones are a collagen matrix that is mineralized by calcium phosphate. So really what collagen does is it makes up all of our structures. So it makes up the protein within your bone. It makes up the protein, the collagen one is the protein with your tendons and ligaments. And so this is really the essential part of it. So, so when we're talking about connective tissues, we're talking about tissues that are made from collagen. And so when we talk about synthesizing collagen, what we're talking about is the potential to be either increasing turnover rates of bones, tendons, ligaments, cartilage, or we're going to maybe accrue more of that tissue and make that tissue stronger. So when, you know, when we look at the broader concept, for example, of muscle protein synthesis, for example, and we got into this in our podcast back in 2015 a lot, and subsequently with many other guests, including Stu Phillips, who, by the way, was in the last podcast I did. Um, the exercise stimulus is, you know, an essential part of, of that process. Um, and yes, some protein synthesis will occur if you just consume protein and so on. But again, I use the word relevant is my favorite mm -hmm. word is, you know, what, what is the relevance of the exercise stimulus in, in this topic? So the, the big thing we think happens with the exercise is that unlike muscle, unlike bone, our tendons and ligaments are pretty much free of any vasculature. So they don't have blood vessels. Mm. So when you think about how you would supply nutrients to things that don't have a lot of blood vessels within them, what you have to think of is you have to think of how these tissues, what these tissues are. They're essentially like a, a tissue, like a sponge. And a sponge, everybody knows that if you've got a sponge and you pull it to wring it or you squeeze it to wring it out, what it's going to do is all the liquid's going to come out of it. And then if you put it into a liquid solution, it's going to suck up the liquid from this environment. And so what we tend to, what we tend to use the exercise for is that that's how we're going to target the collagen the amino acids that we've digested and absorbed to the areas that we want to get them. So if we don't do anything, they're going to just circulate around. They might help the skin. They might help your hair, but it's not necessarily going to help your tendons and ligaments. If we then do a series of exercise that now is going to pull on the tendon, squeeze out all the water, and then relax the tendon, allow the, allow the, the tendon to pull in fluid from the environment, if that environmental fluid now has, is enriched with these amino acids, now it's got the building blocks to make new collagen. So that's really what we use. Um, basically, what, the way that I explain it to my students is that we use exercise as the address on an email or a letter. If you're just going to send a letter and it doesn't have any address or any information on it, it's going to go anywhere in the world. 
But as soon as you put the address on it, you know, in most countries, it gets to where you want it to get to. And that's really what you're doing with your exercising is you're delivering it. You're, you're addressing it so that it goes where you want it. Yeah. And I think that that's important because, and we'll get to in a minute when we, we talk about how to actually, you know, put this into practice is the, the relevance of timing. Um, because of course in the real world, you know, there's an interest in, in using this, not just from a rehabilitation perspective, but potentially to help prevent some problems, uh, particularly in highly susceptible, um, athletes. And, um, before we get into that, because I want to talk about, you know, what did you find in your research? You know, what doses, like, you know, um, how much, uh, I have looked around a lot and there's some interesting variety of doses out there. Um, but also, you know, are there other components to this, this, this strategy, like vitamin C, for example, we'll, we'll, we'll quickly discuss. Um, um, but also, let's just go back to sort of a real person in the real world from the perspective of dietary choices. For example, vegans. Um, I, of course, had some issues, um, you know, with, with my athletes during the World Cup who uh, were Muslim. So, of course, it had to be halal. That made it pretty difficult to find certain things like gelatin. But we got through that, didn't we? Um, but... Um, I do, you know, there is a there is a significant growth of interest in veganism, particularly I'm seeing this in the trendier sports or the trend affected sports like football or soccer for those that, that need me to translate that. But the, the <laughs> um, I mean, what, what are the implications, you know, particularly from a nutritionist who's looking at their athlete and going, you know, rather than just constantly thinking of supplements all the time is what about their basic day-to-day diet from a food first perspective? What's important there, Keith? So, so that's, again, that's what a lot of people have gone to, to bone broth. I know that um, the EIS before the London Olympics, because um, I'd been talking with uh, Jenny Pierce, who was, who was nutrition there um, before, before some of the, the Olympic games that were going on, they were, they were doing, um, they were doing a lot of bone broth. Um, one of the issues with bone broth is that bones are where animals store their 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 heavy metals. So you have to do check you do have to check for lead content and other heavy metals, which there are a number of studies that are out that show that lead is enriched in these products. And there was a recent study um, from the AIS that showed that you could go to different places and get different bone broths, or it's very similar to if you go to a different coffee shop, the caffeine that you get from your coffee is going to be very dramatically, the caffeine or the collagen content that you get from your bone broth varies dramatically as well. And that's uh, some work from Rebecca Alcott down from Australia. And so, so there is, you can try and do it that way. Jenny used to always say that the best way of doing this is that you, you have a hyena diet, which is, you eat everything, you chew on the bones, you eat the cartilage, you eat the connective tissue, but most people aren't really willing to no. do that or don't really find that attractive. So, <laughs> yeah, football players, my 11-year-old daughter, it's very yeah. similar food choices, right? So, <laughs> yeah, so, so not a lot of people are very big into that. So that's why, that's why it tends to be something that people are, to some degree, they, they need to get it um, from, a, from a kind of supplemental source. You can get it from red meat, especially if it has a little bit more gristle in it, because again, the connective tissue is where you're getting it from. 
Um, but there aren't a lot of other sources for some of these amino acids. Well, some of these enriched. You do make, but it is a, I think, you know, th this is where this is one of those interventions that actually make some sense if you just look at it from a slightly broader you know, the sort of the devolutionary impact on our eating habits where we have gone very sterile. You know, we don't eat eyeballs and bone marrow and all right. that stuff. We, we you know, it, it's just some chicken and broccoli in a plastic tub sort of approach. You know, we're not actually eating these things. Um, exactly. And, uh, if you go and you go to a Japanese restaurant, they actually serve tendon. They actually serve yeah. Chicken feet, and those things are incredibly rich in collagen. So, so in different cultures, this isn't actually an issue because and different species, of course, when you look at other animals, particularly the ones that sprint around and chase and hunt and so on, they do make a habit of eating all of those things, don't they? Yeah. So, so it is, and then, and as I was saying before, any of the collagen products they have to come from an animal source because there is no vegan or vegetarian source of collagen. We can form gels, but we're not, using, we're not using a protein that has amino acids to do that. We're using a sugar that uses different kind of mechanics to make the gel. There's not really, at this point, there's not really a vegan or vegetarian source. I know of one company that's trying to produce it using bacteria, but mostly that's for, um, for cosmetics now because they use a lot of it. But I don't know that they've gotten to the point where they're food grade yet. But this is, I think it's an important point that we're making here is that you know, whatever choices you make, you know, we can be obsessed with what the pros are, but we forget about the cons. And, right. you know, it, it's, it's, it, it might seem trendy. There might be some good arguments one way or the other to go down a, a plant-based diet, but the consequence of that, particularly as it relates to athletes whose tendons and ligaments will take a hammering is there may well be consequences that could yeah have significantly detrimental effects on their and I can I can tell you that we had a couple of athletes who did go vegan we didn't find out about it um, from some of the teams that I work with they didn't the, the performance team didn't find out about it until after they started getting all kinds of injuries and they were like what's going on what is, what's changed and he said oh well, I'm eating clean and this is one of those, <laughs> one of those fun ways of saying that, yeah. that you're not eating you know, some of those things that, like you said, that it's a little bit dirtier, the, the cartilage, the gristle, all of these things are not as clean as the sterile diet of you know, some of these other things. And, and what we did see is that there is, we do see with a number of athletes who are vegetarian or vegan, that they have a lot of tendon and ligament problems. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, I, it, that choice to go vegan is not really what we're going to debate. It's just that right. for actual for athletes, it may it may I require think it's abstaining to go vegan. But then, if you're an athlete, you're going to now have to supplement with something like this. Yeah, as as a thing that says, look, I, I can go vegan, but I can still be an athlete. Yeah, and I think this is one of the things that if you're in a a high impact sport, yeah, you need to have that as a as a component of it. Yeah, yeah, or just not be an athlete, obviously. Uh, um. So let's ju let's just go back to the, the other topic here because you know it is this has gotten popular as you said the the growth in this segment in the supplement industry I think you've made a very good case for why we should supplement it 
Um, yes, you can home make some, you know, we'll get into the various ways in which we can, we can get this stuff uh, with supplements and, uh, and or make our own supplements uh, beyond just getting it from the diet. But, um, you know, you, you, the, the idea of how much comes mm -hmm. up yep. um, and is it, is it just collagen or does it, you know, what are the essential components that need to go with it? Uh, for yeah, it to so, actually work you know what what do we know and, and also what you know what don't we know in, in that context as well that that hopefully well that you, you that we need to know in order to take this further so the most important thing that we don't need to know is the best place to start and yeah. what that is we don't know that um we don't know that gelatin or hydrolyzed collagen is actually better than any other form of protein because all we've done is measured whether collagen synthesis goes up when we supplement with collagen or gelatin we haven't done whey protein just to see, okay, is it just protein or is there something special about collagen? And it could just be, and this is a study that we've got starting up now, where we're looking to see whether collagen synthesis increases the same if you take whey protein or if you take gelatin or hydrolyzed collagen. So that's the number one thing. And that could be the big downfall of the whole area. It could just be, eh, look, any protein is good. And it could be that, that that's the core. But it could also be that there's something special about these other types of proteins. Um, and so what we do know about kind of concentration or how much we want to take, what we've done is we've done a series of studies um, where uh, the, the Shaw paper in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, we did um, 5 grams and 15 grams. The 5 grams didn't have any effect. The 15 grams had a significant effect. We've since gone back and done... Um, 5, 10, 20, and 30, um, and the 20 seem to be the peak amount. We haven't published that one. That's, that one's in progress. So, so the 20 grams of hydrolyzed collagen seems to be, was the highest point. I can't tell you what 15 grams of gelatin versus 20 grams of collagen because we, we haven't yet made that comparison. So what, I'm, what I would like to say with this is it's 15 to 20 grams, and we think that 15 is going to be sufficient but just because we of how we designed the second study, we said, all right, we already know that 15 is good. Now let's see if 10, is, 10 and 20 are different. There was a difference between 10 and 20. So, so now we think it's about 15 grams to 20 grams of um, hydrology. And Keith, what about, because sometimes people will say these things, but what they're talking about is um, to reference man or reference woman. Mm -hmm. You know, if, you're, if we're going to differentiate rugby from football and sumo from college wrestling you know we're talking vastly different sized people so definitely so we don't have any data that that says that it's that it's um going up with size so but again we haven't done that in a stringent uh test as we need to do right as i said early these tests the early ones because look i i paid for the first study greg and i paid for it out of kind of our own pockets yeah. We couldn't bring in tons of, of subjects because there's just not, there's not the means to do that. So, so as we're getting more and more interest in this, the, the possibility of doing bigger and bigger studies is coming up, and that's really going to be key to understanding the differences relative to body mass, the differences relative to different types of exercise. Are people who do a lot of training different than people who don't do a lot of training? Those questions are really, really important. All we've got so far, as I said at the beginning, is we're, we're running behind and we're sprinting as hard as we can, but, but everybody is, you know, 
taking it on board and it, there's all this buy-in from the public, but the science is still sure. in, its, in its latency. Uh, as um, is always in these situations, isn't it? Exactly. And uh -huh. so the other thing that we know is, yeah. is certain is that we need vitamin C. Yeah. We know that not only because vitamin C is essential to collagen synthesis, you need it for an enzyme in our bodies called proleol-4-hydroxylase. That enzyme needs vitamin C as a cofactor. When it uses vitamin C to make collagen, what it does is it uses that to, to form, some of the, form some of the proleol links within the molecule, and it consumes the vitamin C. So what that means is that you, every day you need to get about this 48 is the R, 45 is RDA, somewhere in there, milligrams of vitamin C. The reason we need that is because every day our body is using that enzyme. That enzyme is breaking down vitamin C. And when we wake up in the morning after an overnight fast, we're basically out of vitamin C activity. That's important because our studies, what we do is we do what we do in science is an overnight fast. We're going to give you something and then we're going to train you and then you're going to, we're going to see the response. In an athlete, that's not the same situation. We know that vitamin C is essential for this response because of two things that we've done that were, you know, when you do them, you're like, oh, that's a mistake. But then when you realize that you've done it, you say, hey, that showed us something really important. The first one was that we did a gelatin versus, a gelatin versus hydrolyzed collagen, 15 grams of each, and we saw that they're pretty comparable in, in the response in collagen synthesis. But then what we did is we combined the two of them, seven and a half of each, and we made a gummy product. The way that we did that is we boiled the juice, we dissolved the gelatin, and then we let it set into a hard gummy. And then people took 15 grams of half of it was gelatin, half hydrolyzed collagen in these little gummies. When we looked, they had no collagen synthesis increase. Hmm. We're like, what happened there? We know that this is, this is the right amount. And then we're like, well, maybe because it's hard, it takes longer to digest and absorb. So we measured how many amino, what's the appearance of the amino acids? All of them were exactly the same. So all the amino acids had appeared to the same degree as gelatin or hydrolyzed collagen, but we still didn't see a protein synthetic response. And then we went back to basic food science. Vitamin C is very temperature labile. If you boil your vegetables, you get rid of your vitamin C. And here we did, we boiled our juice that we used to make it. So we basically killed the vitamin C. So that was the first thing that was kind of a mistake. The second kind of thing that was a mistake is we were doing a study that was to determine how much vitamin C we needed to optimize the, vitamin, the collagen synthesis response. And this was our third study in a series. And during the time, the vitamin C powder was sitting on a shelf it was right by the window. Hmm. It was not in the fridge. It was not. And so we'd seen all these nice responses throughout our earlier studies. We go and we do another response where we're holding 20 grams of hydrolyzed collagen with increasing doses of gelatin, or sorry, vitamin C. And we saw absolutely no collagen synthesis changes. And we're like, what happened here? We had just done a study two months previously with the same stuff. And it worked beautifully. We saw this nice induction. And then we're thinking of it and we're, okay, we, we came to the, the boiling for the other one. And then we're like, well, how do we store the vitamin C? And there it was on the shelf, exposed to light. Again, it's very, very sensitive to degradation. And so what these two studies showed us is that vitamin C is absolutely essential 
for an overnight fasted individual because you wake up in the morning, you have no more vitamin C because you've consumed it all. Mm. So you need a source. So we either need it from our diet. I, I use strawberries or oranges or anything that has vitamin C or we need to supply it in the product. That's a great insight there to the sort of uh, serendipitous aspect to how some things are discovered, which is wonderful. Um, as you were saying that, I was thinking also about the relevance of things like digestion, kinetics, and so on, you know, um, because it's quite clear in your research, and maybe this is just because how you controlled the studies, but, you know, you're mentioning, you know, one hour before uh, the physical activity. What, I mean, why is that? And are you able to hypothesize further, you know, about timing? You know, what's the yeah, so, so the timing, again, what we're talking about is we're talking about trying to target these tissues that are behaving like a sponge, squeeze out, open up, draw in nutrients and draw in fluid. So what we wanted to do initially is we wanted to supply the nutrients while that squeezing and, and drying up the liquid was so that the liquid that they were drawing in was enriched in these amino acids. To be honest, we don't know that it has to be before. It could be that we could do it afterwards and it would work. Um, what we think is probably likely is that afterwards gives you something, but maybe giving it before gives you something a little bit better, mm. right? And then as far as the hour, basically what we had done is we had taken blood every 30 minutes in the first study of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition because we only had enough money to run a certain amount of amino acids. So we said, okay, let's take it every 30 minutes for the first hour, and then we'll take it, you know, uh, an hour for the last time point. And what we saw is at 30 minutes, amino acids were up. At uh, 60 minutes, they were up even higher. And then by 90 minutes, they had started to come down. And so what we were doing was we were trying to target that peak. Um, Greg Shaw and his group down in Australia have done a little bit of extra work, and they say it's between the peak happens maybe at 40 minutes. So it's somewhere 40 minutes to an hour. But again, 40 minutes to an hour, half hour to an hour, any of those timings are going to probably work for, for an athlete. So basically what we have them do is we have them come in. They're going to come in. They're going to they're get changed into their kit. We just have a drink that's there. They drink the drink. Then they get into their kit. Now they're going to go, and by the time they're – Maybe they have a meeting, they have other things that they have to do. By the time they're actually going out onto the field, it's been 30 minutes, it's been 45 minutes, something like that, and now they're optimized to do whatever it is. Okay, so, so that's how we would incorporate it into, into practice. If we're doing a specific session that is designed as a rehab session, so it's not in regular training, now we can do it, we can do this 40 minutes to an hour before and really target that timing just to make sure that we're getting it where we want it to go. And of course, there you know there has to be a sort of a practical component. Uh, like I found when I was doing this with that particular player, and also I started doing it with some of the other players who were sort of injury uh, high risk or actually did have some injuries. Is there's times when you can give it to them, and then there's times where um, you're taking a risk because all of a sudden, you know, I mean, a lot of stuff happens in a football game or before, or, you know, people need to have conversations or the player may need to go and see the doctor or, you know, have a chat with someone. So, you know, it's, I, I think what's clear is, is, is we, we need to get it into them. It seems ideally before, but I guess whether it's 90 minutes before, an hour before, even half an hour before, it's not such a big deal, is it? 
right? It, it, what we talk about is we talk about the 90-10 relationship. Yeah. 90% of it is just getting the basics down, getting it in there at some time or maybe, before, you know, getting it in there in, in general. And then the 10% is the extra 10% that's going to get you that maybe towards the elite status is now actually dialing it in a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So that extra 10% is getting it into that time that's around an hour. But if, you're, if you've timed it and it's going to be an hour, but then, you know, there's a, they have to go to see the physio, they have to do something else, it, you haven't lost anything. You're still going to get some of the effect. It might not be perfect, but it's still going to be much better than nothing. And it, is this something that is just an acute thing? You know, just you, you do it once and there's going to be some benefit or is there an, you know, is there an additive effect over time? Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts in, in that regard? So, so basically what we've, what we've done is we've done a number of different things. And in, in the practical um, realm, the most practical one we've done is, is on a professional basketball player that had a central core patellar tendinopathy. So basically, it was a hole in his patellar tendon. This was identified by MRI, so you can actually see the hole. And, and you can the paper's now out in the uh, International Journal of Sport Nutrition Exercise Metabolism. What you can see is on the MRI, there's this nice white space that's basically water. Because anytime you get an injury, the collagen within the tendon isn't directionally oriented anymore. And then we you get is you get this process called stress shielding where the healthy part of the tendon shields the injured part and that prevents tearing of the tendon. But what it also does is it prevents you from getting the tendon better because you don't, you need that load in order to give a directional signal to the cells that are trying to re to to fix the damaged collagen network. And so what we did is a special kind of loading we call stress relaxation. It's just isometric contractions. An hour before we give them, vitamin C enriched orange juice with the gelatin. He would swirl around, drink it. Then he would do, you know, a series of isometric exercises. And he did that while he was playing in more than 50 NBA games. And he did that, you know, in his training. Then we got an MRI 12 months later. There's no hole in the tendon. We got an MRI six months later, still looking great. And the other thing that was really interesting is not only did we fix the hole and fix his knee pain. So he was pain-free for the first time in, in a long time is what he would tell us, mm. even though he told us that he had no knee pain before they did the intervention. After the intervention, when he fixed his knee, oh, suddenly he had pain for years and years. But that's just a professional athlete who didn't want to be sat on the bench because he said he had knee pain. Sure. What we noticed about his patellar tendon is not only did the hole go away, but the actual thickness of the tendon itself was bigger. So you actually saw that we had made his patellar tendon more robust by do- incorporating the collagen nutrition together with this stress relaxation loading, optimizing kind of this, the structural components of the tendon. You give the signal of the load and you give the nutrients. Now the cells can synthesize collagen and, and basically fix and regenerate that tendon. And that's really something that was novel because up until then, the, the people who are experts in the field would talk about fix, treating the donut, not the hole. So the idea of the, the tendon was a donut because it had a hole in the middle. And nobody, everybody said it wasn't really possible to fix the hole. So the, you just concentrate on making the donut part of it stronger. And what we tried to do is really address the core problem, which is the hole within the tendon. Yeah, and here in, 
over here in the UK, you've spent a long time over here. We might use the uh, the polo mint analogy as opposed to the donut. <laughs> yep. That's yeah. why you guys are a little bit smaller in, in um, obesity rates than we oh, are. I don't know. The latest stats are not looking good, are they? We're, we're getting pretty big over here. But anyway, that's another topic, isn't it? Listen, yeah. we've already been talking for an hour, Keith. So oh, um, I think we'll... Uh, there's just a couple of things I still wanted to discuss. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we've convinced people based on your observations in your research that there is definitely some value in having this as a tool in the toolbox let's just quickly think about those those areas that you would seriously consider using this you know what it's high up in the list in what in what areas uh, i did mention earlier not just rehab but prehab but maybe you could just explain a little bit more precisely where you feel this has its greatest value yeah so so i have i the greatest value is going to come before any injury is there mm. because when you're loading and there isn't an injury, you're not going to get stress shielding. You're not going to get all these problems and you're going to target those tissues and those tissues are going to increase collagen synthesis the way they would normally do. But now they've got an extra stimulus and extra amino acids so that they can be a little bit more productive in that way. So before injury is great. So that's ideal together. And so basically, an hour before you go out for quality sessions, any, any sessions really on, on the football pitch, if you're a basketball player, if you're a volleyball player, those are the times where you want to have something like this that's going to increase your ability to respond to that exercise bout. So that's the first thing, definitely, definitely as a prevention. Um, and what a lot of people say is that, you know, especially for female athletes, what they would like do is they would like to have the the ACL rupture before they have the ACL rupture. So if you treat it as if you've already had it and you do all the rehab, the likelihood of you getting the injury in the first place is way low. And so that's really really what we want to focus on, especially in developing athletes. One of the most common things, so my, my daughter plays football and everybody on her team at a certain point gets heel pain because they get these insertional enthesotomies because you're, it's growing pains you're not synthesizing collagen fast enough to allow that growth rate. And so within two weeks of having them taking gelatin or hydrolyzed collagen, they're running perfectly fine and pain-free. So you can start this very early on. Um, And what I do is I've been, my daughter's been taking it for years and it's not something that we have to fight with her to get it in. It's we do it in a smoothie or something like that before she goes out to train and then what we're trying to do is we're trying to get that in as part of the prevention component. Build her resiliency and decrease the likelihood of injuries in the first place. When you do get injured, that's when it becomes something that we really focus on. Whether it's a bone injury, a tendon injury, we've got some really interesting stuff going on with one of the NBA teams that had a, a patellar tendon problem where they were getting wearing away of the cartilage on the patellar tendon. We, we did a loading and, and gelatin or hydrolyzed collagen program, and they've actually seen a lot of that fill in. And the orthopedic surgeon says he's never seen anything like that in his, in his history. So those types of things, if it's a musculoskeletal injury, that's where we're trying to bring it in. And so to, before we finish and, and sum up here, uh, my final thought then is from a – um, you know, from a, a, a sort of a, a strategizing perspective of 
not just using it maybe once or twice a week, but perhaps using it more often than that, particularly for, you know, athletes who are training even two, three times a day, apart from just, you know, the practical side of it, do you think though, from a sort of a physiological molecular, et cetera, perspective, that there's actually some logic into a more chronic ingestion or exposure of of this because of the the adaptations i guess that the body has in in actually making use of this stuff you know what what are your definitely thoughts? because there's basically it's it's like any of the other protein sources if if you're not using the amino acids they're either going to be stored yeah as as a fat or they're going to be your you know you can be removed in the urine so so it isn't something that's going to accumulate it isn't going to be something that has big downsides as far as a as far as warnings type of thing, mm. there's no reason not to use it. We haven't seen any reason yet. Of course, the, the data is still early not to use it on a daily basis if you're training every day. Um, and again, like I said, the vitamin C is probably just for the, if you're going to train in the afternoon and you've already eaten stuff that has vitamin C in it throughout the day, you're not overnight fasted. You probably don't need the vitamin C at that point. Um, so it's really, we, we still have a long way to go to, to really dial in exactly what the prescription would be, but having it on a daily basis, if you're training every day, I don't see any problem with that. And that's what most of our athletes do now. Right. Well, okay. So look, let, let, just to summarize then, Keith, you know, I think we've gone into great depths as to, um, or you've gone into great depths and in, into you know, what this is, why it works, how it works, even up to dosaging. Um, but your, to summarize then the, the most important aspects to this, particularly the, the takeaways that people need to remember about this, what, what would they be? Yeah, so what you want to do is if you're, again, what we're looking to get is about 15 grams of either gelatin or hydrolyzed collagen, um, there's all kinds of different products. Everything we've seen, everything we've tested seems to work the same. So there doesn't seem like there's a reason to shell out a whole lot more money for a, a specific product. We haven't seen anything yet. Maybe there, maybe there's something there. So that 15 grams of, of gelatin or hydrolyzed collagen, 15 to 20 in there. And then if you're taking it in the morning, you haven't had time you're maybe somebody who's doing time-restricted feeding and you're not going to eat anything in the morning, you need to have some vitamin C with it at that point because you don't have any other source. If you're taking it later in the day and you've already eaten things that have vitamin C, we, I don't think, we haven't tested yet, but I don't think it's going to be as necessary for that second uh, or for that later in the day type of treatment. Um, so you're going to do that 15 grams of gelatin. You're going to leave about a half hour to an hour before you're going to go out and do your training if you're training specifically to rehab something keep the training short we didn't talk about it but your connective tissues respond to very few loads it, they already stop responding after about five to ten minutes mm. so you don't need to do a lot of loading in order to stimulate the cells within your within your bones tendons and ligaments and cartilage so you're going to do that loading about an hour after you've you've had the, the supplementation. If you're able and if you're still completely healthy, you can take it before your training sessions. Your training will then target it to the parts of the body that are most loaded during that session. And that's great because that'll be a protective um, 
a protective nutrient or a protective structure that you're going to build up to reinforce to make sure that the body can, continues to work properly over time. And that's basically what we would do with it. Thank you so much, Keith. I feel, uh, you know, th these podcasts are always like, how are we going to spend an hour talking about this? It is just amazing. I mean, it is like everything. It's a fairly nuanced area. Um, and like you say, said at the beginning, you know, there's a lot of hype and it, people have, r have run a very long way in a very big way without us really knowing a whole lot about it. But, but clearly there's something there. And, um, and we've gotten into that. And what I will do for those that listen, um, I will have links to the various papers that, that I read and also that we've talked about, like the Shaw paper you referenced. And there's a few other really great papers that gives more background. Also how the actual science was done, how we've come to learn what we've learned, but also, um, for folks that want to, uh, just, you know, learn more from you, you're a solid person to learn from. I know you, you're reasonably active on, on things like Twitter. You've got, you know, ResearchGate and so on. How, how do people find you in that, in that way? Yeah, so on Twitter, um, I'm at, at Muscle Science. So yep. I got in early, so I got a good handle. So, yep. so that's really good. So, so you can follow me there. And what I tend to do is I tend to, um, I tend to talk about things that, that we're publishing, that other people are publishing that are really mm -hmm. interesting. Um, what I try and do is I try and break it down a little bit more beyond what the title says to actually look at some of the data and, and, and give a little bit of interpretation. That's um, so so that's, a, that's an easy way. And then the one thing that I do like to reinforce when I, when I do any kind of podcast is if you listen to this and you're like, oh, I can't get to this paper because it's behind a paywall. If it's something that I've written, you email me. And one of the things that as a scientist, you publish all these things and you have no idea if anybody's interested in them. Yeah. People start emailing and saying, Hey, can you send me this paper? It looks really interesting. Any professor will be super excited yeah. to send. Please you. read my work. Please read my work. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's desperate, right? So, yeah. so never feel shy about doing those things. If you, if it's something yeah. where it's a paper, whether it's mine, whether it's a cancer researcher, whether it's anything, yeah. just email the, the, corresponding author and say i really would like to read this the, the abstract looks interesting yeah. can you please send it to me yeah. and people will send it to you with with really nice notes absolutely um, absolutely and 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 for the most part you're all really nice <laughs> um thank you keith once again it's always a pleasure to have a chat with you um i hope everyone really benefited as much as i feel i've benefited from that that conversation as I said, we, we have done another podcast in the past, um, which is episode 38. I'll link to all of this on okay. our website at uh, guruperformance.com, where, of course, we do have a uh, science-to-practice educational um, sort of outputs and, and so on. So I encourage everyone to have a little peek at that. And, of course, to delve further into um, Keith's uh, work and his research group at his lab, um, and uh, the the and also his many PhD students, uh, some of whom I've interviewed as well um, on on uh, on lots of great topics. So your your impact has been great, and of course you're going strong, and you're going to be around for a long time. So I'm looking forward to more podcasts as we go. All right, perfect. Thanks a lot, Lauren. Yeah, Pleasure. take care. Thank you so much. Thank you.